0: Uh, my name is Zeynep Kaya. I'm a research fellow at the uh, LSE Middle East Center, uh, and I work on Kurdish politics. And it's my I'm really excited, actually. It's my great pleasure and honor to introduce you uh, to David McDowell and welcome him uh, to the LSE today uh, to talk about uh, the NIV edition and revision of, of the modern history of Kurds. I'm sure you all read it. Um, it was published in 1996, and when I started to work on, on Kurdish politics, it was one of the first books that I read. And, um, and uh, if you, you know, if you look at the history of uh, Kurdish uh, studies uh, and the amount of p- books that were published uh, in the 1990s, uh, David's book was a jewel for us, uh, for those who were entering to this field and trying to find out more about it and its comprehensiveness. So it's been. Um, after 10 years of st- starting my research and now having David at the LSE talking about his new edition, it gives me great pleasure. Um, just briefly about David's background, um, David McDowell studied Islamic history under Albert Hourani for his first degree and wrote his postgraduate dissertation on the Durzi, revolt in Syria, 1925-1927. He's a generalist, having worked with the British Council and UNRWA before becoming a full-time writer, writing on Britain, Palestine, Lebanon, and the Kurds. After 20 years of writing and self-publishing a series of British landscape books, he has reverted to updating his History of the Kurds. The book, uh, History of the Kurds, was published in 1996, and it became a foundation text uh, for the growth of scholarship on the Kurds, and it was an revised and updated three times, and it does still uh, remain an essential part of the literature. So David, as I said, is currently updating the book, uh, and today, um, this evening, he will share his thoughts on developments in the field um, and the process of revising the book, uh, having published it uh, two decades ago. and. Um, uh, in terms of the, his observations of the field, what areas have gained in an importance and understanding after 25 years. Uh, this event is also quite special, and that's what particularly I'm very excited about David having David here today, because this event also marks the launch of uh, the Kurdish Studies series uh, that uh, Robert Lowe and I uh, launched, uh, started uh, about a month ago, and we will have Uh, We will convene events and seminars and conferences and bring um, those working on Kurds in academia, outside academia, looking at the issues um, from different perspectives and bring them together and create a platform, a forum for for discussion and engagement. Uh, So this event is marking the launch of of that um, series as well. Unfortunately, Bob couldn't be here today. He's uh, unwell at home, so he was going to chair, chair the event, but I'm here so you'll have to just put up with me for the evening. Uh, so that's it for me. So David, uh,
1: Zainab, over to thank you. you. Uh,
0: thank you for coming. It's mm. great to have you
1: here. Yeah, no, that's really kind of you. Thank you very much for coming. And a particular thanks to Zeynep and also to Robert, because they've been immensely kind to me. I have really not given Kurdistan or the Kurds much thought in the past 15 to 20 years and um i've actually really benefited from the middle east center here and and the events it's laid on in in getting trying to get back up to speed with what's been going on in kurdistan i thought i would just say that i really i wrote um about the kurds um 20 years ago over 20 years ago really by accident I had been living and working in the Lebanon and I'd been there during the civil war and I'd worked for Oxfam during the Israeli invasion of of, uh, the Lebanon the siege of Beirut. And I was asked by a small charitable organisation to write an essay on uh, basically the civil war in Lebanon and how how and why things had gone so badly wrong for Lebanon. And uh, following that, they then approached me and said, Would you kindly write on the Kurds, about which I knew very, very little. But I had met Kurds because I had lived in uh, Baghdad uh, in the mid 1970s, um, not for very long, but for, I was working for the British Council at the time. And so I gulped and I said, Well, okay, but, but accept that, you know, I'm starting from point zero. Um, and I, I wrote a report. This was for an organisation called the Minority Rights Group. Um, but one of the things that came across very, very strongly was how little there was available in a Western European language. Um, and I don't know German, but I do know enough French to read, read um, what was available in French and what was available in English. Um, And I think there were only about 10 books, really, that had appeared in the 20th century concerning Kurds. There was a really quite wonderful book, I think it's called To Mesopotamia and Kurdistan in Disguise, by a man called Eli Sohn, who was, I think, really quite extraordinarily observant, and he travelled before the First World War. Um, The C.J. Edmonds, Turks, Kurds and Arabs, um, a great book written, published in the 50s, but about his time as a British political officer in Iraqi Kurdistan, um, shortly after the end of the First World War. Um, The Chalion's book, um, People Without a Country, I think its title, um, there's Adarman Rasimlu had written about... um, the Kurdish question in Iran. Um, and the absolute gold standard, and it remains the gold standard for me, is Martin van Brunnison's book, Arga Sheikh and State. Um, it seems to me that that is, absolutely remains the key work today. And I think it will remain so. It's, it's a wonderful book. Um, another one I benefited from was uh, Wadi Jwedi. Um He had written a history, a narrative history of um, Kurdistan but it was only available in TypeScript at the time, and I was very fortunate to be able to lay hands on it. It's since been published. Um, And there were one or two others. Um, And the reason I decided to write, because there was no narrative history available as a kind of introduction, and I wanted to write at greater length, than certainly the minority rights group um, were prepared to let me do. And... and, um, I happen to live in southwest London, and the National Archive is only a bike ride away. And I think, probably correctly, I assume that it's probably the the, the best written archive on what's been going on in Kurdistan over the last 200 years, probably anywhere. Um, except for, I imagine that the Ottoman Archive, but I don't have Ottoman um, I don't have modern Turkish or Ottoman Turkish, so I guess there is a huge amount of material there yet to be mined, um, and I suspect that in Russia also there would be really valuable material. So I entered this field <coughs> knowing that my abilities were, were limited in what I could look at, Um <clears throat> Um, I was limited linguistically. My Arabic is pretty weak, but I struggled with um, three or four books in uh, in, uh, Arabic. Um, And the other thing is I've never lived in Kurdistan. So although I visited Kurdistan, I've not lived there. So again, I was very conscious of the way that that limited my understanding and take on, on how things happen, why things happen. Um and, I, and so I spent three three years of intensively going through the archives at in the um the National Archive and writing. Um I was fortunate my wife kept me during that period because it's anyone who's written an academic book knows that it's cheaper just to tear up banknotes than than to spend our time doing that. Um <clears throat> and Coming back to it now, um, and I started turning my attention to it towards the end of 2016, um, there were three things that I was particularly conscious that, and and I think there are probably, um, there are a lot of things that I would now wish to have done perhaps differently. Um, But there were three things that struck me that I've really been missed out on. In, in the book, which I'm trying now to address. And the first one is the question of Syria. The edition of my book that came out um, shortly after 1998, which I suppose it was probably the second edition, had an appendix on Syria. And there were two very obvious reasons um, why I had not written before. In, in the mid-90s, the the question of the Kurdish community in Syria simply did not feature almost anywhere. Um and it's and they, they, they were compared with Turkey, Iraq, or Iran, again small in number. Um but the other reason, quite honestly, is that I had run out of steam. Um I really did had to get get back to earning a living. So I had not done anything on Syrian Kurds. And then uh Another charitable organisation, the Kurdish Human Rights Project, which I think no longer exists, but it was going then, they asked me to write a report on Syria's Kurds. Um, You will not be surprised to learn that the um, Arab Republic of Syria did not feel like offering me a visa to visit and see anything for myself. So it was again done all from... um, written sources and from talking with um, Syrian Kurdish exiles here. And it's one of the things I've spent some time on, is actually trying to write a much fuller account of Syria. And um, I don't want to bore you now with, with, with um, all that I have um, been trying to write about, but the story is really in a way quite, I think, quite different from um, certainly um, the early story of Kurds either in Mesopotamia or in eastern Anatolia. And there were tribes, of course, and tribes moved, I think probably rather more tribes than has generally been written about, more, more numbers moved into Syria in the uh, 16th 17th and 18th century Um, and one of the things that really did interest me was how much evidence I started to come across of people who said um, my ancestors were Kurdish and I think that that relates to all those peoples, those groups running down the coastal mountains so um, there were Kurds who got as far as Palestine. There were Kurds, um, certainly um, the Ma'ani dynasty in the Lebanon was of Kurdish origin. The Jumblats claimed to be of Kurdish origin. If you go to the Akkar in North Lebanon, um, a lot of families there say, oh, my ancestors were Kurds. And so there's a... And and further north in the Alawite mountains, undoubtedly some of the Alawite community are of Kurdish descent. What we don't know is what the proportion is, but I think it's probably, um, I think that Kurds are not so exceptional. I think they're actually quite, people of Kurdish origin are are probably quite common there. Um, And of course the behaviour of those mountain lords is not that dissimilar from the behaviour of tribal chiefs. In other parts, in parts of Kurdistan, um, and the other thing that was very characteristic about the Kurdish community is that it supplied Syria with meat and it supplied Egypt with meat. So one can imagine that <coughs> droving livestock was a very by Kurdish drovers was a very familiar sight across Syria. But the real characteristic in Syria. I think, um, is, is a military one. And I think that the, here is the key to why Kurds tend to stand apart from the rest of the Syrian population as different as other and viewed as other. And in 1982, as I'm sure you all know, uh, there was an uprising by the Ikhwan, particularly in Hama. That was suppressed ruthlessly, probably in the order of 20,000 people were killed. And after the dust had settled, graffiti appeared in Hama. Al-Akrad alakrad Kilab al-Alawiyin, the Kurds are the dogs of the Alawites. And this was chalked up in many places. The reason? because Kurds uh, were well represented in the Syrian army and they fought for the Assad clan. And the reason, of course, is because so many could not find employment elsewhere. And most of you are probably familiar with the fact that in in Syria, Kurds have had enormous problems over citizenship identity. This did not bar them from serving in the army. Indeed, they found themselves... Some young men compelled, if they wanted employment, to work to join the army. Now, the reason I, I quote that graffito is because I think that the, this does not <coughs> simply relate to the fact that they helped suppress the Ikhwan in Hama. I think that it, it, I would associate it with a, a much longer-standing sense that the Kurds are other, they're not one of us. And I came across... Um, And my reason for thinking that is that the Kurds, Kurds arrived in Syria, in uh, Damascus, before um, the time of Saladin. We know that they must have been there by the beginning of the 12th century. So they've been around for a long time, but they've been there as military, as soldiers. And I don't know whether anyone here has actually been in the armed forces, either Britain or somewhere else but I may be the only person here who has been, but I started my life as a young man, as a soldier. I regret to say it was a big mistake. But I was acutely aware, being a soldier, of the difference between the military and the civilian world. And uh, I know that there's... And wherever there are military barracks, there tends to be a tension between soldiers and the civilian world. Um, so I think that this sense of tension with the Kurdish military presence is very long-standing. And I came across a wonderful uh, quotation from Aleppo um, <coughs> in the late 18th century. And this was a popular saying in Aleppo, four were born to do mischief, rats, locusts, Bedouin, and Kurds. And the reason... That Kurds are numbered among them is because governors in both Aleppo and Damascus found that Janissary troops were so unreliable and tended to be loyal only to themselves that if governors wished to actually apply force and assert their authority in the countryside around um, the, the 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 cities of Aleppo and Damascus. Um, they actually had to raise their own troops, and they raised them from the Kurdish tribes. And so Kurds got this reputation of being the cavalry that was used by the Ottoman governors to suppress the countryside, and had a, enjoyed a very poor reputation as a result. So I think this relationship between Kurds and the military in Syria is a distinctive thing that it does not happen um, elsewhere. Um, and it's, and it's certainly going to be a theme in, 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 in what I write, in, in trying to write about um, the Kurds in Syria. Um, and it was true in... Yes, I mean, here's another example. The, the uh, trouble in Lebanon and Damascus in 1860. Kurdish troops called out, meant to suppress the Sunni Muslims who were killing Christians. On the contrary, the Kurds assisted they, again, they got a bad reputation for that. Um, and it was after that that's when, when uh, the Ottoman authorities really tried to assert a form of discipline on Syria and started to have the means to do so um, with the advent of uh, rifles, which made a real difference, the ability of Ottoman troops to, to um, assert control on the province of Syria. Um, the Kurds, Lose their, their influence and power in Syria, uh, except for one or two landlord figures, um, and f- I think for the Kurds in Syria it has been somewhat been downhill since then. Now, I don't want to talk about um, recent events. I mean, we can talk about that later if you if you wish to. I think now the second thing that I was very conscious that I've not uh, written about and I should have done is the question of gender and i'm particularly conscious of it because i think that if you look across middle eastern society and certainly the society of um mesopotamia then um kurdish women tend but let's let's uh, so far as i know and i think it's within limitations they tend to enjoy greater freedoms and uh, let's not call it equality, but a, a greater greater rights than than in mainstream Arab society in Mesopotamia. But um, 25 years ago, uh, in the early 90s, there was f- nothing I could find about um, gender matters in Kurdish society. There was just the beginnings of people writing about gender <coughs> matters in Palestine but i don't think that there was i'm not aware of 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 it um people writing about gender <coughs> in other places and so um i think that was a serious omission i mean i was aware and i mentioned people like Leyla zana beginning to to cut a real profile for um women in in um kurdish society and since then of course we've seen how uh, women have played such a, a very significant role in the, in the PKK um, and the PYD, and indeed the commander of the Syrian Democratic Forces in the siege in in the uh, retaking of Raqqa was indeed a Kurdish woman. So um, things have really started to change, I think, and I, th- I think it's a, a uh, an immensely significant phenomenon. And in Iraqi Kurdistan, I think I'm right in saying that uh, young women are um, more strongly represented in tertiary education than are men. And that obviously has implications for the future in the way that Kurdish society develops. Um, and it's only about a week or 10 days ago, um, the, there was a film festival in Duhok. I expect most of you are aware of that. And it celebrated the um contribution of women in kurdish film so again this is a significant i think a significant event and it's only in recent years i think that well we've been aware of um what i would call shame killings i don't like the word honor i think it's i think it's such an inversion of the reality shame killings against uh, women in Kurdish society that's been well known about for a long time I had not been aware of uh, <coughs> the prevalence of FGM uh, that came as a, a big surprise to me um, and that's true of uh, the provinces of Erbil and of Sinemania not it seems further north and not so far as I know in Turkey um, why that should be I mean someone may have an answer for that my understanding is that the practice is associated with um, the Shafi Madhab, um, which which recommends it. Um, but it does not seem to me that that's a very satisfactory or full explanation. Um, so that's, again, something that I feel very conscious of having missed out on. And then the third thing is um, uh, the third topic I feel I did not write uh, sufficiently about is the question of Islam and it's not the first time I've written something about the Middle East where I feel I've, I've um, underestimated the, the power of Islam and yes I write about the Turok, the Naqshbandis, the Kaderis and so forth and Saeed Nursi but um, I think there have been significant develop, developments since actually the beginning of the 90s Um, and I think, I mean, the obvious major shift has been, um, a, um, a return to the imagined fundamentals of the faith. Um, and it seems to me that what has happened has been that, um, those traditionally schooled as scholars of theology have been outflanked by, um, self-made, self-made or self-appointed religious leaders. Um, And I think it's quite an interesting parallel with the rise of Protestantism um, in Europe, uh, the way that the Catholic Church became um, 500 years ago, was outflanked by people who were basically self-educated. They, or at least many of them were, and they... Took what they believed were the fundamentals that they found in Holy Writ and reinterpreted it in a literalist way. And it seems to me that something parallel has been going on in the Islamic world. Um, and certainly um, one can see um, evidence of this in Kurdish society. I mean, some have become um, Salafi or fundamentalist in their approach to Islam and their view of. Those who are not do not um, uphold um, st- a strict interpretation of Islam, and one. And I wonder whether they are more strongly represented in Kurdish society than elsewhere. I mean, it's a difficult one, I, and and but it seems to me this is an interesting question. Um, one's had um, bombers in suruç in Ankara. There's Ansar al-Islam in in Iraqi Kurdistan. There seems to be a a strand in Kurdish society that has responded to very fundamentalist interpretations. And then there are those who are, um, again, it seems to me, um, these are self-made religious leaders who have been more eclectic in, in their approach. Inspired by the Islam- Islamic Revolution in Iran, uh, inspired by the Ikhwan, um, inspired by the writings of Said Nosi, Al-Madudi, um, and if you look at um, Hezbollah, Kurdish Hezbollah, it seems to me that those ideas are current in in the way that they have uh, developed and are now um, the party Huda'pa. It's um, and and what is what is again it's it strikes me that it's rather like early puritans who develop these these schools of thinking which don't really have a relationship to the or to, so far as i know to the established schools of theology that have been embedded in 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 the middle east um for over a thousand years um I don't know if any of you have read uh, Mehmed Kurt's book on Kurdish Hezbollah, because I strongly recommend that. It's a wonderful wonderful insight into uh, the thinking of the followers of Hezbollah, which of course was a very um, bloody um, and violent organisation in the 1990s. But you realize that reading (coughs) his book, you see that actually the vast majority of adherents of these religious organizations tend not to be violent and they tend to be, I'm shocked, but they are conservative in their thinking and they feel that um, they are attracted by an ideology. They tend to be young, they tend to be suggestible. Um, And there's an interesting overlap between conservative values and religious values and here again is an area in in my view of great ambiguity the way that people have voted in turkey for example kurds have voted for the akp strikes me as as not necessarily specifically islamic but it does tend ten, I think I think it is some a tendency towards conservatism um anyway I would be really if anyone is researching Syria, gender, <laughs> um, Islam, I mean I would be really appreciative to have a conversation because because I'm struggling with these things and trying to work out what 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 I can understand from from printed sources. Um, well, what has happened since I wrote the book in the 1990s? Um, when it comes to religion and I've already said something I think one of the most interesting things is the way that the Alevis have emerged as a rather distinct group I mean it's not as if they did not exist before but there has been an assertion of them as as not only in terms of I think religion but I I really don't know about that but in terms of a cultural identity which they have certainly asserted Um, and I suspect that the same may now happen with the Yazidis. That the traumatic events of 2014 may have had a real impact on the way that they see themselves and how they have to express themselves to the outer world. And it may happen to al Haq as well in Iran. <coughs> um, there's been an enormous change since I... Um, wrote 25 years ago um, in terms of Kurdish society and the first thing is that it was overwhelmingly rural when I was writing and now it is largely, in fact, perhaps overwhelmingly urban for a variety of reasons Um, in Turkey the emptying of the countryside by the Turkish military and the emptying of the countryside by the economic Um, neglect um, and impoverishment of eastern Anatolia has had a massive impact. Um, In Iraq, um, again, there's um, been massive urbanization um, for a variety of reasons, but I think largely because um, the Kurdish region has attempted to, well, it has become part of the market economy um, And the things like the um, oil for food programme in the 1990s had a a really quite negative impact on Kurdish agriculture. And so people have moved to the cities. Um, And I think that it's bound, that is bound to change their thinking, the political thinking of people who move to cities. Um, And I think it's quite difficult to predict how it will Change thinking. I mean, if you look at, for example, Beirut in the 1960s or 1950s, when poor people came in from the countryside, there was a widespread belief amongst the richer people in Beirut that this is a wonderful melting pot. That people come to Beirut, they acquire the manners of the city, they will become urbane, they will become sophisticated, etc., etc., etc. And on the contrary, what happened was people, of course, as as I'm sure you know, reinvented their identity based on where they had come from and on their religious identity. And, of course, it was a major transitional point to civil war in in Beirut. Um, What's going to happen in Kurdish towns and cities, I really don't know. But I think it will have... I think urbanization will have a real impact. Um, and how does it affect um, the attitudes of others? I mean, particularly, I have in mind Turkey. Turkish attitudes towards Kurdish migrants has become more negative. It's a very good book by Cenk Saracoglu, um which looks at um, what has happened with Kurds going to... A, Um, migrating to Izmir Um, and I suspect that similar things happen in other cities which are mixed cities where in in Iraq and Iran where Kurds acquire a reputation for asserting their identity which is different from the state-sponsored identity and of course the other thing that's happened with the move um, to the cities is that now, particularly in eastern Turkey, the <coughs> you have old old villages are composed of old people, and they have a very poor uh, income. Um, uh, there's a very good book by um, by uh, Veli Yadirgi on the political economy of of um, uh, the of um, Turkish Kurdistan, I've forgotten its title, but it came at CUP, it came out recently. Um, tribes. Tribes have changed, I think. Um, I first went to Kurdistan as a tourist in 1971. Um, most people, most men were, well, both men and women were in traditional clothing, so the men were in the, their wonderful outfits wearing kalash on their feet. Not, not on the whole, leather shoes. Um, uh, that started to change. Um, I went to, um, I, I interviewed some. This is in 91 or 92, February 92. I've, I managed to interview some a couple of Kurdish chiefs who were visiting London. And uh, they were in western suits. They arrived late. I went to meet them at the the. Um, with the place that they had chosen they were about half an hour late oh we were buying Gucci shoes they said Mm -hmm. I didn't think much of it at the time I was amused but of course it was actually quite significant and I saw the pattern here and I recognised the pattern because it happens the world over, it happened in, in the highlands of Scotland, chiefs came down south to London, they acquired the habits and interests of the city life and it has an important implication for the tribe people who come to the city need more money they um, so they enclose their land they become magnates and this is what happened one of them hussein sirchi was of course he was killed in 96 by the kdp but his his family remain important magnates have become more important magnates this is what tribal chiefs do they they move their money from and their their wealth once lies in the lands, the flocks, their tribespeople, and it moves into real estate. And the tribespeople are left to fend largely for themselves. But there is a social implication. I mean, they they um, uh, marriage is still happens or is it's attractive to marry within the tribal group, recognised people, people you know. Tribal chiefs hand out largesse, patronage, but they now do it out of the money that they're making on real estate. So there's been a major change. Um, I'm going to quickly gallop through uh, other things I had to say. I'm running out of things. Um, What do Kurds now want? What has changed? Well, there's an end, I think, to pan-Kurdish rhetoric. There was a lot of it. Um, 25 years ago, I'd meet uh, Iraqi Kurds, I'd meet Turkish Kurds. They'd say, We are one people, we the Kurds. And very insistent, although I noticed that in London, expatriate Turkish Kurds and Iraqi Kurds really tended not to socialize together at all. So I always took it with a bit of a pinch of salt. Um, but I wonder now what is, what is happening? What do Kurds really uh, want? And we, when you look at um, the way that um, Erjalan has changed the mission of the PKK and moved away from nationalism, he now says it's a bad thing. Where does that leave Kurds? What do, the, what do they want? And do they want the same thing in Iraqi Kurdistan as they do in Turkish Kurdistan? It seems to me that there is a dividing of the ways. There is also a scaling down and, and the... um, independence referendum last a year ago um, in a way I think probably marks the the high water point of Kurdish um, nationalist ambitions in Iraq and it's going to be scaled back uh, because I think that they don't really have have, um, choices Um, and the other thing that well I've got so many questions but one of them is what is, what is happening with generations? I mean, I, 25 years ago, I was looking at people who are now either dead or older than me, um, and leaders of Kurdish society. What do young Kurds think, want? And I think there's going to, likely to be a real generational change in the ambitions of, of Kurds. And I think there is also a divide that you can see in Iraq, and, and over the independence referendum between what one might call liberal nationalists um, and ethnic nationalists. And it seems to be that Masoud Barzani and the KDB has rather embraced a kind of and driven an ethnic nationalist view and the PUK has tended to have a rather more liberal take on, on the future for Kurdish people and I would say that it is probably fortunate for the Kurdish region in Iraq that Barham Saleh um, from the PUK has become president of Iraq because I think he he uh, embraces a wider view of Kurds in a relationship with the rest of Iraq. Now I may have got that wrong but that seems to me to be good news for Kurds and possibly also good news that his prime minister is um, Abdul Mahdi who again, as a Shia, has, um, has always had a favorable um, view towards Kurdish society. And I think that's actually rather Im- important because there are quite a few Shia, I think, who do not share that, that rather liberal view. Um, I'm running out of time. Uh,
2: five minutes, Another five minutes. Another
1: five minutes. <laughs> um, I think I should probably say something about democratic confederalism. <clears throat> um, I think it's uh, I think it's probably a utopian uh, view it's, it's um, at first blush it's very very attractive grassroots um, s- small scale bottom up um, it's a kind of idealised it seems to me it's an idealised view of how we could all live but I think it's got real problems and the first problem is human nature and that is that most of us as um, the Soviet Union discovered don't terribly like being collectivised or being in in that kind of a system and I think the more important one is is that it cannot make its way against the power of the economies that surround um, Rojava which is the only place it, I believe it's being practised at the moment. Um, and I, I'm left wondering what what most Kurds think about it. I and mean, I've got this, again, a lo- lovely quote from uh, um, uh, Juma Chichek's um, book uh, from a Kurdish businessman. They, meaning the, the um, advocates of democratic confederalism, they imagine living in a communist system, residing in adobe houses and looking at the stars, this is a very cutting remark, but I think it's a significant one. They live in a world of the imagination. And I think there's the problem that Erdogan living in prison, it, it, this is, this is a, an abstracted idea. We have neither the intellectual nor material capacity to change the economic conditions of the world. And I think that's the reality, that it simply has, has major problems against, against the realities of Turkey or or other parts of Kurdistan. What has happened with the internet and digital television? I think this is again a big question, but possibly not as big as we are tempted to make it. If you go back to the 1960s, peasants and slum dwellers were revolutionised by the transistor radio. I mean, we've, we've kind of been there before. It had a massive impact Take the revolution in Iran in ni- 1979. The background to that is illegal cassette tapes with Khomeini's sermons. That's what, that's what drove the revolution in Iran. So many people heard his sermons that were smuggled into the country. But I think what, what really is possibly significant with um, the Internet is... It's so individualised with algorithms. And we're all being affected by that. And I have no idea how that's going to affect Kurdish society. But I think that that is the significant dynamic of that and mobile telephones. So there's instant communication. But what the effects of these will be, I really don't know. Does the diaspora, it was a real driver in the 1990s, and possibly even up to 2010 a real driver for Kurdish political thinking. I slightly wonder whether it is still a driver now, and I suspect it isn't. I also wonder whether Kurds are beginning to separate because they find themselves living in Germany, Sweden, Britain, and there's a separation process happening now among the diaspora. And what is going to happen? And your guess on that is probably um, better than mine. Um, One of the questions, I think, it seems to me that in Turkey, the the future for Kurds is very contingent on what happens with Erdogan, or more significantly, after Erdogan. And a big question, I think, is whether Turkish nationalism will weaken in Turkey, because it seems to me that that is an almost essential prerequisite for um, Kurds to have more space, will will Kurdish civil society in in Turkey manage to take over the initiative from the PKK? And does the PKK really have a future given the nature of modern warfare? And I I really do wonder whether whether the PKK's um, road is beginning to run out. Um, what will happen in Syria? Um, I think I would say actually generally, not just Syria um, with a possible exception of um, the uh, Iraqi Kurdistan, that I'm not hugely optimistic for Kurdish prospects and, and my reason for saying that is if you look at the moments, the times when the Kurds have really asserted themselves or been able to assert themselves, <coughs> they are always at moments of weakness in the power center under which they're normally subject. And these are temporary episodes. And and this is what dismays me. I I think it's very, very difficult for the Kurds to break past that. And and if they do, it will, I think, almost certainly be through a civil rights movement rather than through military force of arms. But these are all questions, and I... I'm. I, I don't know the answers. We all have an opinion about them. Um, I think I probably ought to stop. I've spoken for far too long. No,
0: this no. Event. It was. I wish we had more time. I'm impressed yeah, no, 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 with time okay. that we have to leave at quarter past. Uh, well, thank you, David. That was yeah. amazing. Yeah. Yeah. And in such a short time, you covered so much. Uh, I'm sure you no. all have lots of things to say, make comments, or ask questions. So I'll move on to the questions right away. Because of the limited time, I would ask you to actually introduce yourselves, who you are, where you're based. Let's skip that. Let's just move on to the questions. But if you want to introduce yourselves, please go ahead as well. Um, and please speak up because of the recording so that we get your questions, so the recording gets your question.
1: And can I ask you also speak up and speak slowly, because I am now as deaf as a post.
3: <laughs> I have two comments regarding two questions you raised. One is about the killing. If so I get it right, you mentioned that it's less present in Turkish Kurdistan than other parts. And in fact, the highest number of underkillings in Turkey is in Kurdistan. And the same is true for the highest number of female suicide, which many sociologists in the '90s thought it's because of the hardships, which turned out to actually disguise murders.
0: I think he, he you, did you? I think you referred to FGM, yes. Uh, yes. that it was not common in Turkey. I, th- I think his reference was to the FGM, female genital mutilation, oh, not right. honor killings. Okay. I think he mentioned it right after the honor killing and it's killing and sounded like. Am I correct? Yes,
1: yes. I mean, I, I've, I'm not aware of FGM occurring in in Turkish Kurdistan, and yet it's got this extraordinary prevalence in two provinces of and Iraq.
3: This one was the, the intriguing part of the military and Kurdish relationship that you mentioned. And it's present in Turkey, too, right? If you look at Armenian genocide, it was conducted by Kurdish troops, Hamidia troops. Yeah. Yes, the same sure, the sure. Syrian genocide. So I think it's the same connection.
4: Like yes, I
1: think I think the difference probably I wanted to make or should have made is that um, in the case of the Armenian genocide, these were um, irregular forces. I mean, I think I think the the point I was really concerned about making was that in Syria, Kurds had acted as the troops that the governors called upon routinely over centuries in fact throughout the 18th century and well into the 19th century um, and I think that is, that is the, um, the difference and, and, in, in, and in eastern Anatolia of course Ottoman troops have been used to try to suppress the, the Kurdish confederations I, th- I think there is a difference but you're right I mean they were used by um, um, Sultan Abdul Hamid please go ahead
2: Oh, yes, Uh, thank you very much. I noticed you spoke about Turkey, Syria, and Iraq, and uh, Iran was never mentioned. You're right. You could speak a little bit about that. Yes. But more broadly, my question really relates to the economic base of Kurdish society. You implied, but I could have got it wrong, that they were originally pastoralists, moved around, then land enclosures, so you have. You know, fixed farming, and now, for a variety of reasons, they've become incorporated into labour and capital, so they're part of the international, broader international working class. So I wonder whether you could just give me one am my rights about where the original cluster is, and secondly, the relative preponderance of Kurds within the working <coughs> class in each of the four countries, or to what extent are they still. Agriculturally
1: based. Right. Um, first I of all,
2: yes. At the end of the day, for how these political movements do or don't work, the
1: direction of travel. Well, uh, first, I apologise for not talking about Iran. Um, I think subconsciously there was a reason. I think the prospects for Kurds in Iran are gloomier than elsewhere. And there's a very simple reason for that. Well, first of all, for at least half a century, but I suspect a lot longer, they've been known to be the poorest um, element of Iranian society. They're, they're, they're very poor people, and they tend now to be migrant work. The men tend to be migrant workers, possibly the women too. I don't know. Well, it's yes, all the land just does not produce enough to, 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 to live off. Um, but I think behind that is a much more serious problem that Iran's Kurds face, and that is that they are Sunni. And the problem there is that even were there to be a major change in Iran, an end to the Islamic Republic, a more liberal regime, Iranians, other Iranians, because they are Shi'i, are frankly not that interested in Kurds, because they're Sunni. And I think that there's just a lack of interest in them. And I think therefore, one's looking into the very, very far distance and saying, would there ever be a liberal society in which um, Kurds would be valued as, as Iranians? And I think you have to move beyond this, and at the moment we are of course, talking at a time when the Sunni Shia divide in the Islamic world is particularly acute, so that's iran that's that's my feeling about Iran. Um, yes, I mean Kurds were were Kurds were largely pastoralists at the end of the nineteenth century, they were largely pastoralists, and indeed, um, the self-identity of most Kurds was, "I am Kurdish because I am pastoralists," and because of that peasant Kurds who were not pastoralists were I think not really viewed although they spoke the same language were not really viewed as Kurdish by Kurdish tribal chiefs they just said those are peasants they're different well over the last 120 years has been this I mean a massive transformation now largely urban um, so one's really talking about landless people uh, the richest, easily, I think, are Kurdish Kurds in Iraq. But even there, I think, I think, and and I don't, I'm sitting here in in Britain. I've not been in uh, Iraq since 1991. So um, I'm in a sense I'm guessing. But um, there are some immensely wealthy Kurds in Iraqi Kurdistan. There is. Um, I've, any number of corruption scandals. It's a market economy. Um, I get the impression that although agriculture is now subsidized, it's greatly reduced. A lot of agricultural land was sold off for building, a um, real estate. Um, <clears throat> and in Turkey, there were probably three three million people left the countryside in the 1990s And the pattern there is they tend to drift first to the cities, the catchment cities of the southeast, principally Diabaka, which in in a very short span, I think it was about five years, it multiplied threefold. I mean, it just expanded with people squatting, people forced out of their villages that got razed by the Turkish army. But then there's the pattern of a gentle drift westwards so that... Um, As I'm sure everyone here knows, Istanbul is the largest Kurdish city, Um, but also Izmir um, and other places in the west or on the Mediterranean coast. So there's a drift outwards. Some people, of course, lose their sense of identity. if, If they felt their Kurdish identity was important, they cease to feel that. For other people, it becomes more important. And... In most of these cities in the West, there are home associations, hometown or home village associations. People retain a, a geographical solidarity. But there's been no land reform in Southeast Turkey. So the landlords, who have probably now invested their money in real estate because it's more profitable, they remain um, magnates. They, their political thinking tends to be uh, with the centre, they're loyal to Ankara, they're not nationalist, a few might be, but mainly they they tend to have have a sense of affinity with the AKP or the ruling establishment. Mm-hmm. Should I say okay. more? Um,
0: shall we move on to other yes. questions? Get some other... Yeah, please. Mm-hmm. Yes, you. Um,
5: <laughs> you just following on from the comment about um, the Kurds in Iran, um, yes. uh, just, uh, you mentioned... Um, uh, talking more um uh, to more focused on the women, particularly in Kurdistan. Um, and I was wondering if you were aware, because you mentioned PYD and PKK women fighters, and if you were aware that um, actually the Kurdish parties in Iranian Kurdistan were the first to have female fighters in there. I was not.
1: Thank you. Yeah.
5: And, and actually many people are not aware of that, not just that, but the... Kurds in Iran tend to be often overlooked and neglected. Um, and whether you had any, um, uh, if in your new book you are going to focus more on them, or uh, and whether uh, you have, uh, where do you acquire your sources for that part of the book? You know, Where the media often does not focus and many yes. books are not written about that, that yes. part. Of
1: Kurdistan. no well you're absolutely right and it's thin I've wrote quite a bit if if you have read my book you'll know okay you'll say you will know I have written quite a lot it's very it's the hardest part of Kurdistan to find information about so um, yes I've been very reliant on um, Human Rights Watch Amnesty International um, a few articles, journal articles, but there's very, very little. I mean, Abbas Valley wrote a very good book some years ago, but and um, um, Kule, um Kuhi Kamali wrote a very good book in the mid-90s. But for me, that's now in the past. I mean, I'm trying to capture what's going on now, and um, I'm finding that very challenging. There's very little information available, and for me, the important thing about women having become fighters in Iranian Kurdistan before elsewhere in Kurdistan is what impact has that had on Kurdish men?
0: Mm. Which organisation is it, by the way? Uh, so I believe
5: that Komala
0: was the first and then oh, yeah.
5: followed by
1: the Democratic... Uh,
0: KDPI. KDPI. So, yeah. yeah. Komala had connections with the Turkey... And no. Iran, was it the regional or was it just the no, big, it's there just were a
2: couple uh, of?
1: Kamala uh, was is further south. Kamala's heartland.
5: Came
1: to. Uh, um, you're you're from Iran? Yes. Yeah.
5: Um, and I, my my just quickly, so no. where you get your sources? If um, was my question because uh, I know that in the media there's not much. I was wondering if you were talking to people. Uh, or access
1: Well, I might do through you. <laughs> <laughs> give me, give, me, meeting, give me, your yes. details later. I'd be really grateful. Okay. And we this, have a uh, generally, anyone who thinks they got time to I contribute, I will be really grateful. Toby? Okay. Like, I would just like to echo Zainab's um, praise for the book. I think most of us have read it, and it's a masterpiece. So I just tread carefully with the own book because it, a lot of us have invested a lot. of Affectionate. But that, but the next question is very unfair, so I flag it up with that. But if there was an overarching theme of the first edition, what was it? And has it changed? So really what I'm asking you to reflect on is the historiography and social science of the church since the published, and how that would play into a, a kind of a change in your analytical framework going forward. Wow. Um gosh, was there an overarching I don't think there was, but I think I think probably it is um who is occurred and and what how do they respond to that that sense. And I think one of the, the I think the crucial moment in in the first edition was really at about in the early the first two decades of the 20th century when I what I noticed and it's still true today of course and it's permanently true that there were three strands people who thought I am Kurd but I first and foremost I am an Ottoman citizen (coughs) uh, or or a a citizen of Iran um, The second one saying, I am a Kurd and I cannot stand my rulers and I wish to set up my own shop independently. And the third one, the middle ground (coughs) ones who said, I am a Kurd and an Ottoman citizen and I would like to both to be reflected in the way that I am able to live with a degree of autonomy. And there is a fourth strand that comes in, and it comes in, in, in my view, with Ibrahim Ahmed in Iraq, who, who I was very privileged to know. Not very well, but I met him two or three times, and I thought he was a wonderful man, because he said to me, David, I've spent my whole life being deeply conflicted between two issues. My sense of Kurdish identity and my passion for class justice and he said and the second one of course really undermines my just wishing to assert my Kurdish identity and i loved that man i thought he was wonderful because he he realized that these this question of your identity and your values don't sit comfortably with each other necessarily and you're left individually with a struggle about which which one is important and I'd like to think that that is his legacy to the P.U.K., that, that, that sense of, of confliction between two values, that, that they want they want to live as Kurds and have a Kurdish identity, but they do actually care about social justice, not just in Kurdistan, but more widely. Do you think they still do? Um, I think I'd like to say the jury is out on that. <laughs> Mm-hmm. Yes, I don't think they've done themselves many favors in that department over the last two decades, and, and I sometimes think. Well, I have to admit, I, what I've and I'm just beginning to try to update the uh, the Iraqi bit, and as, as I pointed out earlier, in the last fifteen twenty years, I've not given a thought to <laughs> Kurdistan, but I found the, the, the last two decades of Iraqi Kurdistan pretty depressing. I'm afraid it's funny they've got they've kind of got the goods or most of the goods and yet the outcome and I'm left wondering what young Kurds in Iraqi Kurdistan really feel about nationalism and whether they now say frankly it's a pile of pants when we look at our rulers and what they've they've pocketed the dosh what does it stack up to not very much. So I, I think there's. I mean, I think there's interesting times ahead when young people start to challenge, and I think it could go on in, in all sorts of directions. That's not much of an answer, Toby. No, that's very good.
4: <laughs>
0: we have a question here, and then you, you raise your hand first. But yeah.
4: Okay. So I mean, just to answer your point about what young people think. Actually, yes. I decided to take my dissertation on that topic, which. I submitted a month ago, where I actually looked at the young millennials, the perspectives and challenges they face, and my hypothesis, and of course I support uh, support my argument by conducting interviews, is that um, this new generation, which I call them the generation 2000 that came of age and spent their formative years after the US invasion in 2003, they constitute uh, a cultural and political divide than the previous or forbear. Generations and I look at uh, three phases of the pre 1991 and the 1991 (laughs) to 2003 and afterwards. And my interviewees, and I, of course, a small sample, but I looked at the moods of participation and networks and their um, relationships and relating to events that, uh, as I call it, or it's called uh, acquiring fresh contact with life events, there is a huge uh, apathy disillusionment with what is okay. as uh, or you can call it Kurdish nationalism, but we used to use uh, Kurdiety a lot. And uh, I think it's important to look at it when also you look at the uh, statistical part of it, where two-thirds of the Kurdistan of Iraq, Kurdistan's population is under 30 years old. So yeah. it's a rule by minority for like one-third of the population. Yeah. So I don't think yeah. that works yeah. well with... The trajectory that we have seen especially from 2003
1: on that's very interesting my only question is when can i read your dissertation yeah, and what's your
0: name <laughs> is it available <laughs> <laughs> online <laughs> okay, I'll With a okay. Well,
1: not, not tomorrow so but after after
0: the meeting uh, we can just go out there's a empty space there we can carry on talking and mm. and meeting um, um but before we finish one more question and then we have time i think for maybe one or two questions I'm curious, um, I did read your book a long time ago, I purchased it 10 years ago, and I'm curious in the new edition. In how far, you mentioned briefly the markets, economy, and the, the economical developments in Iraqi Kurdistan. In how far will you pay attention how that influences um, its relation to the other parts of Kurdistan? Will it be in its advantage? Like in relation to. The other part of other parts, parts, of Kurdistan, other parts I mean will it enhance bilateral relations or will it separate Iraq Kurdistan more from the other ones because they do have access now to the market economy and international investment so they don't rely as much as before on you know the other part of Kurdistan the direct neighbors
1: so to speak I'm'm I'm, I'm guessing here but my suspicion that Iraqi Kurdistan, the businessmen will of Iraqi, and I suspect they are mainly men, not women but I suspect they will um, not really care about whether they're doing business with other parts of Kurdistan. They will be caring about whether they're doing nice business with Ankara or Tehran. I'm sorry, I'm, I'm a cynic about this. I, I think there are degrees, limits, particularly in economics, to people's sense of solidarity. And I'll just say about that, I mean, I was going to say ethnic solidarity. It's anybody's guess whether ethnic identity is going to be important in a hundred years' time. Why should it be? I mean, if you look at the region, what's been most important over the last thousand years? Religious identity. And it shows a lot of staying power. We've had ethnic identity with Kurds for a century, barely that. Is it going to last for another? It's certainly not. If, mm. if um, my friend here says that, you know, the younger generation in Iraqi Kurdistan feel absolutely apathetic about their, you know, Kurdish nationalism, they've got very good reason to. So it's a journey into the unknown. We really do not know what people, what's going to happen. I mean, I, I think that uh, it's quite likely that other forms of identity will will emerge. Um.
0: Can I add just a tiny bit to that? I've been visiting Iraqi Kurdistan for the last four or five years, and there is disgruntlement with the political authorities and the way the our governance is taking place. But I feel like there's a stronger sense of, not ethnic identity, but stronger sense of Kurdishness, mm. uh, or in, in terms of using the language, in terms of... Uh, but I, I agree with you about the ethnic identity. Ethnic identity never made sense to me, neither conceptually or as a living experience because of the multiplicity of identities, how much they overlap, they're always in conflict, and they change. Why shouldn't we be able to choose our identity? What about civic identity, etc.? But, you know, I think the, uh, what's interesting with the new generation is their thinking is much more um, multiple, multi-dimensional, uh, and it's very interesting to observe that. Um, but there's a stronger sense of Kurdishness uh, as well. Maybe not ethnicity-based, but a different kind of Kurdishness. Mm-hmm. One more question. I think we have time for. Yes.
3: Um, so just to follow from your last point, since ethnic identities <coughs> becoming weaker and weaker, then uh, um, I think that that will actually uh, kind of will be in contradiction with uh, uh, your argument about the, the less appealing idea of democratic confederalism. So because you you thought actually democratic confederalism can be. A, 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 this is a utopian ideal, um, but I might say that I mean any utopian idea can be realistic in the sense that if it can appeal to other identities. So, if the national identity is weakened, then people will look for other identities. I mean, the Kurdishness is obviously is as strong as uh, ever uh, in all parts of Kurdistan, especially, I mean, for example, in Iranian Kurdistan, in, in Turkey, uh, in Syria. But that that's, that could be different from uh, the argument for forming a state. So, for example, what happened recently, last year, in Kurdish Kurdistan, in terms of the referendum, so was a failed attempt and a, a very miscalculated uh, move, and it was clearly known why it was done. So it was mainly personal, and, and for other reasons, rather than any kind of uh, creating a Kurdish state. So there are, there are differences to be made. And I think uh, the, um, the kind of uh, probably um, less uh, accurate uh, uh, comparison uh, made between the PPA and the KDP, KDP in terms of democratic nationalism and ethnic nationalism is probably not very accurate. Uh, and I don't think actually the PPA represents any kind of uh, democratic nationalism or liberal version of, of nationalism. Um, so that's 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 where the, the complication comes in, and mm-hmm. and also the other thing is actually many many writers try to give a comprehensive view of, for example, the privilege question, which I think should, shouldn't be the case. So it's just like uh, you are looking at the Middle East as a as a general um, uh, picture. So you are not seeing the differences, the fine differences between between the cultural and even even the kind of political aspects of different parts of Kurdistan. Uh, so even if the Democratic confederalism, for example, I'm coming back to that example, uh, works for the uh, Kurdish in Turkey. So it might, work, it might not work in, in, in Kurdistan and in Iraq, but it might work in, in the Iranian Kurdistan. So, so it's, it's a matter of what kind of political movement is leading the way. So it depends much on that, that kind of uh, political roles
1: and the, 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 the movement that, that leads in the, uh, the, the agenda. Yeah, no, no I, I, I accept what you say. I mean, I think um, it's and it's very difficult to predict what will happen in in the uh, the four countries, um, and I suspect the story will be different in each. And we've lived through a period when in all four countries a particular idea or a roughly similar idea of ethnic nationalism prevailed. And the PKK was very, very keen on the idea of a Kurdish state at the beginning of the 90s. Uh, Then, uh, of course, Ankara was quite unable then to accept when Erdogan said in 93, where any seeking autonomy, Ankara refused to hear that and went on saying these are separatists, as I think it's probably still saying it, um, I received an unsolicited article on, on by email on the PKK, which I opened it, and it was clearly a state-sponsored bit of propaganda against the PKK, which didn't even man- mention democratic confederalism or any of the ideas that have emerged since... Um, 2003-2004 but um, yes I mean I think the stories and, and this is of course one of the dilemmas that Kurds face accepting that actually the paths in the different the four different states that exist their path is going to be different and and, well Kurdish intellectuals have accepted this for ages I mean back in 30 years ago I, I mean um Kurds who I was meeting were quite reconciled to the idea of being both Turkish and Kurdish or being Iranian and Kurdish and said they wouldn't want it otherwise that that was fine for them and they recognised a, a dual identity um, and thought that the two could work, function symbiotically we'll see you will see, I won't <laughs> I'm far too old, <laughs> and this is the okay. um, this is the dilemma. The story just goes on and on, and you, like me, will eventually run out of space and time and age and so forth. And the story will still be churning out, and you'll think, "What's going to happen next?"
0: <laughs> I think uh, that's that's a great ending because I think the pr- the process, focusing on the process and understanding as it things as it's, it's, as they are now, rather than coming up with finite finite answers. I find that more stimulating and intellectually interesting, uh, which you did very well today, David. Thank you okay. so much. So You brought so many questions, explored so many ideas. We are leaving here today with even more questions, which is exactly what we want, especially at the <laughs> university. So thank you. Uh, and it was fascinating to hear your journey, uh, your view about your p- first edition and uh, how you see the Kurdish... Uh, Politics uh, and and the region have changed over time, and uh, what you will be focusing on more, uh, adding more to the book in the next one. We're very much looking forward to receiving it. um, Is it published? Is it going to be published?
1: I'm still writing, I'm still researching. (laughs) 2020, if if I'm lucky.
0: Great, so we'll we'll, we'll bring you back here
1: again for that.
4: (laughs) 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 Thank you very much, David, for
0: your time.